you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. In this episode, History's Hook is continuing its collaboration with Columbia State Community College as we promote the National Endowment for the Arts Big Read program. The NEA's Big Read is a federal reading program that aims to broaden our understanding of our world, our neighbors, and ourselves through the power of a shared reading experience. Showcasing a diverse range of themes, voices, and perspectives, the NEA Big Read aims to inspire meaningful conversations, artistic responses, and new discoveries and connections in each community that takes part. Columbia State Community College has been awarded a 2021-2022 National Endowment for the Arts Big Read grant. Columbia State is one of many nonprofit organizations across the nation to receive a grant to host an NEA Big Read project, but the college is the only organization in the entire state of Tennessee to receive the grant this year. Columbia State Community College will be conducting many reading and learning outreach programs during the year, all centered on the Big Read book that was chosen, which is Beloved by Toni Morrison. The book was published in 1987 and was a national bestseller and Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction in 1988. The author won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993. Last fall, we began our conversation focusing on the literary aspects of the book, including its themes, literary devices, symbolism, and the book and author's legacy. Today, we'll be shifting our focus a bit and trying to correlate some of the events and themes of the book to a more local viewpoint and through more local historical events. I will give a warning that we will be talking about some difficult issues which may not be appropriate for a younger audience. Joining me to talk about Beloved and its historical precedents are my regular History's Hook co-hosts, Joanne McClellan and Dr. Barry Gidcombe. Joanne McClellan is the founder of the African American Heritage Society of Murray County and the current Murray County historian. Dr. Gidcombe is a professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Joanne and Barry, welcome as always to History's Hook. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, everyone. Before we delve into the history, we need to give a little bit of background on Beloved, I think. Barry, Beloved is set around a formerly enslaved family living in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1873. Take us through the book, if you will. Okay. Well, briefly, the uh, uh, the present for the characters in Beloved is 1873, but the past is continually encroaching into the narrative and into their lives. Setha is the main character. She and her three children escaped from a plantation 18 years earlier with the help of the Underground Railroad, made it to her mother-in-law's house on the outskirts of Cincinnati. By the way, while on the long walk from the plantation to the Ohio River crossing, Setha gave birth to her fourth child. It was to be the start of a promising new life for Setha and her family, but it didn't work out as she had hoped. Her husband, Hallie, didn't get away, didn't make it out, and she didn't know what had happened to him. By 1873, mother-in-law, baby Suggs, was dead. Her two boys had left home. 
and she was living with her youngest daughter, Denver, in a house that had been haunted for years by the ghost of her dead daughter, Beloved. And Setha was a pariah in a neighborhood of free African Americans who wanted nothing to do with her. So what was to come next? To quote the book, to Setha, the future was a matter of keeping the past at bay, which seems impossible. What had happened? The event that a gentleman named Stamp Paid called The Misery. Stamp Paid was a former Underground Railroad operative and the leader of this black community in Cincinnati. And his memory of what happened, he called the misery. There are many themes to the story, which we will talk about. But we want to bring some local history to the telling of this fictional story today, if we can. The story, as you said, Barry, is rooted in the condition of slavery and how slavery impacts the characters in the book. Barry, we mentioned early on that the book Beloved is based on the real story of Margaret Garner. What do we know about her? Yes, Tom, the inspiration for Toni Morrison's Beloved was a tragedy that occurred in a black community on the outskirts of Cincinnati in 1856 involving a runaway slave named Margaret Garner. Garner and her family, her husband, her four children, an infant daughter, a daughter not quite two years old, and two boys— escaped across the Ohio River with a group of runaways from a Kentucky plantation with the assistance of the Underground Railroad. The story is well documented in court records, in uh, local newspapers, uh, articles, and also in the uh, a chapter of a biography by a gentleman by the name of Levi Coffin. Levi Coffin was a Quaker who was one of the leaders of the Underground Railroad across the Ohio River, and he wrote about what happened when Margaret Garner and her family made it to the home of a relative on the outskirts of Cincinnati, Joe Kite. Unbeknownst to them, they were being pursued by the plantation owner and federal marshals, and this is his description of what happened. The house was surrounded by pursuers the masters of the fugitives with officers and a posse of men. The door and windows were barred, and those inside refused to give admittance. The fugitives were determined to fight and die rather than to be taken back to slavery. Margaret, the mother of the four children, declared that she would kill herself and her children before she would return to bondage. The slave men were armed and fought bravely. The window was first battered down with a stick of wood, and one of the deputy marshals attempted to enter, but a pistol shot from within made a flesh wound on his arm and caused him to abandon the attempt. The pursuers battered down the door with some timber and rushed in. The husband of Margaret fired several shots and wounded one of the officers, but was soon overpowered and dragged out of the house. At this moment, Margaret Garner seeing that their hopes of freedom were vain, seized a butcher knife that lay on the table and with one stroke cut the throat of her little daughter, whom she probably loved the best. She then attempted to take the life of the other children and to kill herself, but she was overpowered and hampered before she could complete her desperate work. So very much mimics the 
the storyline of Beloved. It's hard, I think, with a 21st century mindset to wrap your brain around all that is happening in, in that horrible, uh, t- terrible scenario. It happens still today. Uh, infanticide or filicide uh, continues today. The circumstances are probably much different, of course. Uh, I think a 1999 U.S. Department of Justice study concluded that mothers were responsible for a higher share of children killed during infancy between 1976 and 1997 in the United States. Parents were responsible for about 61% of child murders under the age of five. On average, according to FBI statistics, 450 children are murdered by parents each year in the United States. Now, modern causes, of course, uh, are studied uh, uh, through the court uh, case proceedings, most common diagnoses of mood disorders and personality disorders rather than psychosis, but the latter accounted for about 15% of the cases. In the scenario that we're talking about, it's something that's completely different. And it's one of the greatest themes of the book that through this horrific event of a mother killing her child, something that would be described in modern times as murder was actually an act of love. Uh, that's sort of the idea that Toni Morrison is trying to get across, that the the condition of slavery is so terrible that the killing of one's child was more palatable than sending them back into those circumstances, that the killing of the child is in truth an act of love, the death of the child uh, an act of freedom in a world that wasn't allowing it to happen. Now, at the time that this happens, the fugitive slave law is the law of the land, which, Barry, you might help help us remember, came about and made legal the ability for former slave owners to recapture their enslaved people, even if they were in free territory, and bring them back to the conditions of slavery. That's sort of what allowed this sort of story to take place. Yes, the, the Fugitive Slave Law is a federal law that was part of the Compromise of 1850. And under the Fugitive Slave Law, this law actually trumps local and state law. And it does make it possible for plantation owners to recapture their runaway slaves in free territory with the assistance of bounty hunters and also federal marshals. And that's what happens here with Margaret Garner. Now, Margaret Garner and her family were taken into custody, and there is going to be a trial. Now, this is not a murder trial. This is the trial that uh, it's more like a hearing, and this is what happens when these runaway slaves are captured, is there is an, like an extradition hearing, and it's pretty much a formality that they're going to be extradited back to the state in which of the, of the plantation in which they lived. But in this case, Margaret Garner's lawyer tries very hard to get a murder indictment handed down from the state of Ohio, hoping that she can remain in Ohio and be tried for murder. And that would uh, that would reinforce her position as a free person who is responsible for her children who are free. And that was the goal. It, it didn't happen because in the end, the judge is going to rule that the fugitive slave law, federal law, trumps Ohio law, and that in Kentucky, Margaret Garner was property. And under the federal fugitive slave law, she must be returned to her owner. That she had no rights 
in the legal system in the United States as an enslaved person. Exactly. One question that I had was whether a similar event had ever taken place in Murray County, Tennessee, or in Middle Tennessee for that matter. Joanne and I actually spent several hours combing through our circuit court records. We looked through tens of thousands of them over the course of a couple of weeks, and I was able to find about a half dozen instances of mothers killing their children, but all in the post-Civil War era. I couldn't find anything that was taking place during the time of slavery uh, here in, in Murray County. I was able to find one from 1838, and the act was done by a free mulatto woman, uh, a free woman of color, and as such was brought up on murder charges uh, for what she did. As a free woman, she did fall under the uh, laws uh, of the state and uh, the nation. I wanted to read the case because I think it's one, it's interesting from a historical perspective. And this, uh, obviously, again, this is not an apples to apples correlation as to what happened with Margaret Garner or the the characters in the fictional book Beloved, uh, but it's as close as we could come. But I think the language is important to, to hear. It's a little redundant. Uh, this is 19th century legalese, so bear with us. But this is how the indictment read. The grand jurors for the state of Tennessee elected, impaneled, and sworn, and charged to inquire for the body of the county of Murray aforesaid, upon their oaths aforesaid, present that Nancy Rogers, a free mulatto woman of said county, spinster, meaning unmarried, on the 28th day of July in the year of our Lord 1838 in the county of Murray aforesaid, being big with a female child, the same day and year in the county of Murray aforesaid, by the providence of God, did bring forth the said child alive of the body of her, the said Nancy Rogers, alone and in secret, which said female child, so being born alive by the laws of the state aforesaid, was a bastard. And that the said Nancy Rogers, not having the fear of God before her eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, afterward to wit on the said 28th day of July in the year of our Lord 1838, with force and arms in the county of Murray aforesaid, as soon as the said female bastard child was born in and upon the said female child, in the peace of God and of the state then and there, being feloniously, willfully, deliberately, maliciously, premeditatedly, and with malice aforethought, did make an assault, and that she, the said Nancy Rogers, with both her hands, the said female bastard child then and there feloniously, willfully, deliberately, maliciously, premeditatedly, and with malice aforethought, did strike, cast, and throw down upon and against the ground, giving to the said female then and there by the casting, throwing, and striking aforesaid in and upon the top of the head of the said female child, one mortal bruise, of which said mortal bruise the said female child then and there instantly died. Brutal stuff. And it's important for us to know, impossible rather, impossible for us to know what the mother was going through that led to these particular circumstances. And as I said, as a free woman of color, she was subject to the laws of land and the charge was uh, murder in this particular case. I don't know how it turned out. We don't have all of the files uh, associated with that particular case. It's going to take a little bit more digging to find that out, which I, I hope to have time to do in the future. Um, but but again, there were probably uh, a half a dozen uh, post-Civil War uh, that were very similar to this um, uh, that was going on. So there are some instances in, in this 
uh, space in this area where these kinds of uh, events were were taking place. Tennessee, of course, was a slaveholding state, and Middle Tennessee was fully ensconced in the slave economy. Joanne, what do we know about slavery in Murray County, Tennessee? What was the slave population? Well, the uh, people of color came to this area as with the early settlers. Uh, in 1810, there was about 25%, and that percentage moved to 45% by uh, 1860. 45% by 1860. Um, so it's a pretty high percentage for uh, this area. Murray County is a, a fully agricultural community at that point in time. There were a number of large farms and plantations here. Do we know where most of the enslaved people in Murray County living out in the country in these plantations? Where there's some living in towns? Uh, what do we know about that? It appears that most of them lived out in the um out in the district, out in the rural areas. In uh, Murray County, by 1860, there were over 1,500 slave-owning families here, and most of them were owned by five or six, well, actually about 12, 14 different families. Um, Most of the slave owners, uh, over 1,000, owned less than 10 slaves. And then we had um, 14 slave owners that had more than 70 slaves. So do we know the percentage of households that were slaveholders at this point in time? Um, no, the pers- no, no, I know that we had uh, 1,500. I think by 1860, it comes out to about uh, 40% of the population in Murray County were enslaved. Exactly. About 47% of the households owned slaves. Okay. So that's a pretty, pretty large percentage uh, by, by 1860. So certainly this area was fully ensconced in slave economy. People were making fortunes uh, on and through slave economy and the exceptionally fertile land uh, found here in, in Murray County. It's very much a part of the, the lifestyle uh, and economy of, of this part of the country. Most of the slaves, were, both male and female, were agricultural workers, and the type of work deten- depended on the type of operation um, the work was dictated by the need of the slave masters, uh, dict- uh, domestic or household. Some of the servants were domestic. The women cooked for the families, cleaned the homes, and most of the men um, worked on the farms. I think we probably have some stories about some of the enslaved people that lived in this space, and I'd like to like to talk about some of them. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, let's tell some of the stories of some of the enslaved people that lived in Murray County. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. 
Hello, this is Rick Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. What is a full-service jeweler? Experienced staff, custom designers, in-house jewelry repairs, and beautiful jewelry. Yes, at Tillis Jewelry, we are passionate, knowledgeable, and committed to integrity. We strive to be the best in our community and in our profession. We build long-term relationships and become part of family traditions that will cross generations. We delight clients by providing an unparalleled selection, superior service, and exceptional value. Tillis Jewelry, we exceed your expectations. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter. Like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Barry Gidcom of Columbia State Community College and Murray County historian Joanne McClellan, and we're talking about the novel Beloved, which is the NEA Big Read book selected by Columbia State Community College in a grant that they received this year. Joanne, before the break, we started talking a little bit about the experience of the enslaved here in Murray County. And there are many incredible stories that come out of this space uh, related to the lives of the enslaved here. Uh, Can you give us a couple of examples? Yes. uh, The institution of slavery did not support or allow for the enslaved to have a true family unit. Slave marriages had no legal standing nor protection from the abuses and restrictions imposed by the slave owners. Some enslaved people lived in nuclear families with a mother, father, and children. In these cases, each family member belonged to the same owner. Other, others lived in a, nuclear, uh, a near-nuclear family in which father had a different owner than the mother and children. The one case that comes to mind is that of Gilbert Dial. He was living... He and his wife and children were living on separate plantations, and the wife and children were sold, and... Gilbert was so distraught from that that he decided to burn the um, slave owner's barn, and for that he was lynched in 1862. The uh, The other case is a child story. Uh, Rufus Estes wrote in his autobiography that uh, his brothers, two brothers, went off to war. And, oh, by the way, uh, his two brothers were killed, and we were able to put their names on the memorial at the Murray County Courthouse. But his two brothers were killed, but 
at five years old, Rufus had to work, do the work that his two brothers had done. And this was not, he was not the only case. Uh, there were other children in the area that had to do the work that their older brothers did when they went off to the war. Um, Rufus ended up uh, living, uh, leaving Murray County, moving, becoming a um, porter on the on a train and becoming very famous. He wrote a, a cookbook. Uh, the other story that I think is really interesting, and that's the story of Edmund Kelly. Many people have heard the story of um, Edmund Kelly having to leave Murray County because his owner uh, was becoming, um, was having financial difficulties, and he left his family back here with their owners. He eventually was able to raise money and buy his um, wife and children. But there was a poem that he wrote in his autobiography that talked about the the pain and the the sadness that he felt when he had to leave his children. Tom, you should be able to, you should read this poem, not me. But um, it says, "Sad thoughts come over me, stealing, and gloom is on my brow. The loved ones of my bosom, where are my kindred now? Oh God, that voice." Of wailing, was it an idle dream? For off I hear it sounding, the whip, whips harsh strokes between. And it was just really, really sad. And um, the good news about Edmund Kelly, though, is he was able to leave. He eventually got his children. He was, um, I call him an, uh, an activist, uh, minister, writer, because he was one of the ones uh, considered to be of the same stature as Frederick Douglass. And he worked with, or he met with Abraham Lincoln to uh, talk to Lincoln about um, the former enslaved joining the war. And he became, I think, a very, very famous, influential person from for the from this area. We, uh, the African American Heritage Society, recently put up a marker for Edmund Kelly at the um, church where he co-founded here in Columbia. Um, we may come back to him for just a second. You've covered a ton with these three stories. One of the main themes of the book that I, I think connects to the stories that you've said uh, right now is this idea of family. There's a wonderful, if you can use that term, line in the book where uh, Paul D. says to Setha, your love is too thick. He, he's warning her that it's dangerous as an enslaved person to love even your children too much because one of the great tragedies of slavery is the is the loss of identity that everyone has. That as a slave, to love someone, you are immediately running the risk that, as you said, families were torn apart. Fathers had to leave children. Mothers were taken or children were taken from mothers. Uh, to to love and to have a family unit, something I think that's one of the most basic of human needs is torn apart by this institution of slavery. And these examples, every one that you just gave sort of speaks to that. I think it's interesting. Uh, genealogy, the study of one's family history, is the second most popular hobby globally. It's a billion-dollar industry, and why? Because people have an innate need to know where they came from. Uh, and it's not uncommon at the Murray County Archives to have African-American people coming to try to piece together their family histories, their stories. 
and they're some of the most difficult to try to work through because the records aren't always complete, but they're most certainly the most satisfying to my mind when, when we can find some success with that because they want to know. Where did they come from? Where did their family come from? It's an amazing thing. So one of the great tragedies uh, of slavery, maybe the greatest, is this loss of family unit, this loss of identity that comes about. Let's transition a little bit, Joanne, and talk about this transition that happens from slavery to freedom, because this book sort of spans that change in time. Every character in this book is a victim of slavery, even post-slave times. They're trying to deal with psychologically, uh, sociologically, within the family unit, what slavery meant to them and how it affected them. Um, And and that's something that every formerly enslaved person in the country, I'm sure, had to go through. Let's talk about some of those folks, like Edmund Kelly and his story, and how he made – his story is maybe exceptional in that he, as as an enslaved person, made it to the Northeast, sort of gained power through uh, his words, his ability to speak publicly, and he manages to buy the freedom of his wife, Para Lee, and their children, and gets his children educated, and they do amazing things in their lives as well. His is truly a success story. What are some other stories of people in Murray County that lived through enslavement and then go on to freedom and do some other things. Do we have do we have some other stories? Well, yeah, we probably have a lot of stories, but you know, my personal family um I first re- started researching my family when I realized that my great 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 uncle fought in the Civil War in the Battle of um, Battle of Nashville and I started following that family and I researched them extensively. And one of my great-great-aunts, who was born into slavery, she ended up, before 1900, buying her own little 54-acre farm. So there are some success stories. There was another case of a, a man named John Gilmore, who is, would say, I call him a community builder. He was born into slavery, and he was actually, in his autobiography, he actually talked about him being given education by his slave owners. And then he ended up uh, going to um, uh, going to the war, coming back, going to Roger Williams University, becoming a teacher. And he was actually the moderator of something called the Rich, Richland Creek um, Baptist Association for over 30 years. And um, he was, you know, a teacher. He was... Um, uh, very, very influential in not only Murray County, but um, Giles County. He ended up building two churches here in Murray County on East State Street. Um, and he, his his son ended up going being a, a, one of the first, first officers commissioned in um, World War One and becoming a lieutenant and a doctor returning back to Murray County to, um, to practice medicine. So there are a lot of stories, positive stories. What are some of the greatest outcomes, would you say, for people who made this transition from slavery to to freedom in, in this community? What what lives did they create? The and how were they accepted into the community? That's that's a difficult question. I think one of the things that most of the enslaved people wanted to do more than anything was to learn to read and write. So we have a lot of people who were formerly enslaved, who had parents who were enslaved, came back to this community and contributed to building this community. When you think about uh, Edmund Kelly's son, J.H. Kelly, who um, ended up being the 
uh, first principal. Actually, he actually started College, College Hill and the first principal of a College Hill. And then you have Dyer Johnson and the Dyer jo- and the Johnson family. Every single member of that family contributed to community building. You have R.G. Johnson, who ended up being the second principal of uh, College Hill. J.W. Johnson, who um, attended Boston University, came back to Nashville, was the first African-American president of Roger Williams University. He ended up coming back to uh, Columbia. He was like an entrepreneurial business owner. He owned a huge facility on um, South Main Street that he leased to both black and white business owners. Um, so it's amazing to think about. I mean, that transition, that's an easy story to tell, but let's let's unpack that for a second. So you're going from, you're seeing people that are going from a condition of slavery with zero education, zero business background whatsoever, and they're creating communities that are ensconced in education and business development and church development. Where are they getting the skills? Where are they getting these skills to be able to do these things? That's interesting. I just think that it's like from hard work. If you think about Edmund Kelly, uh, it was from hard work. If you think about when he learned to read back in 1834, 35, he was so desperate to learn to read. At the time, he was working at a boys' school here in Columbia, and he was so desperate to learn to read that he bribed the boys with candy to allow him to use their books, and to teach them. So he would pray to God, he said in his autobiography, Mm -hmm. that he could wake up at exactly 11 o'clock to use their books before they needed to use them again the next morning. And this is how he learned to read. But it seems as if the people who really understand, understood the that education was really the path to freedom. They uh, are the ones who were so totally focused on education here in uh, Murray County. If you look at um, uh, the, the the Kelly family, the Johnson family, they were all born uh, before the Civil War, and they ended up understanding the importance of education, and they wanted to give back to their community, community they dearly loved. And they came back here, although they left for a while, they came back to make sure that the people here in this community had education. In fact, they started something called the Murray County Colored Teachers Institute when, you know, the the Plessy versus Ferguson decision came down that says separate but equal. They realized that they needed to do something to make sure that the students, the people of this community had education, and they worked very hard to do that. And education would come to the formerly enslaved pretty early on uh, with the Freedmen's Bureau uh, coming to Murray County and opening several schools uh, here. Uh, So schools were opening up uh, for children to go and learn to read and write and uh, the the basics of education. The uh, other thing that is important to know is a lot of the – and I'm finding this out with a project that I'm working on with MTSU – a lot of the teachers – with the Freedmen Bureau, they were most of them were African American men. They were not the old maid school teacher that came from the north. They were African American men. I'm researching where they were actually from. Were they actually born here, or did they come into this area? But these people were teaching, trying to teach these former slaves under some some very challenging conditions here at the time because you're talking you're talking about 1865 to 1870 very very challenging especially when you had a system or organizations that did not want the african-americans to learn to read and write because 
the African Americans saw it as a path to freedom. The other uh, people saw it as not being able to control and needing people to stay in a position where they were can only do slave labor, if you will. So um, it was very, very important. The education, and I'm always surprised as to the emphasis that people placed on education here in Murray County. Um, There's a story of this slave, former slave out in Spring Hill, and she learned to read in a Freedmen Bureau school, the one that was started by a Union soldier from the North, She um, learned to read, learned to write. She eventually was assigned to teach at a school down in the Mount Pleasant area. She went to uh, the uh, Central College, got her degree, and was teaching in five years after she, after uh, about five years after Henrietta started the school in Spring Hill. But the key is, and I haven't seen it or haven't seen it in my discussions with other people. The emphasis on education here in Murray County was 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 amazing, amazing. It's fascinating. Let's talk about business for a second. You said you know a number of formerly enslaved people were starting businesses and and communities. Were these businesses segregated? Were they separate from the white business districts, or were they right alongside? They were. It's really interesting. In the before the Civil War, there were about 143 free people of color. And these people were starting their businesses even then. They were blacksmiths and barbers and uh, plasterers, shoemakers. And there's one particular case uh, of a barber, John Brown the barber, who in 1850 had a business over on North Main Street. And then he sold his business to his partner, and that business continued until the early 90s, 1990s. We have records of him lending money to white folks in the community. He was an entrepreneur even prior to the Civil War. Yeah, and he owned several, when the city was first laid out, he owned several lots on the, on the, near the square, uh, even before the 1900s. And even J.W. Johnson, um, he bought the building at the corner of South Main and um, East State Street in 1896 for $1,496. That was unusual for African Americans, and that and the family owned that building for almost 80 years. The other thing is that there were, even with John Smith Gilmore, he was he was a head of something called the Building Commission in in. In Tennessee, uh, in Murray County, and his business was, in addition to being a minister, his business was building houses. He built houses for himself and other people in Murray and surrounding counties, and also built churches. So they they had skills that they um, they developed their skills even during slavery and after slavery. And then, of course, there's the story of the McKissick family that. Um, came out of the Spring Hill area, and they ended up developing or establishing that um, uh, architectural firm that is now very famous in that they did the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the National Museum of African American History, the newest component of the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, It's an, an incredible story. And oh, by the way, now that company is run by the daughters, Daryl. And right. Cheryl. Uh, a, a, a woman-owned company, <laughs> African-American women-owned company, uh, and have been around for generations and generations. Uh, right. 
And that story hails from Middle Tennessee. The third component to this, uh, Joanne, is the religious one. I, I find it fascinating, and uh, we've talked about this before. We need to delve into this a little bit deeper. But there is a strong religious tradition among African Americans here in Murray County, early in the history of the county. And that's not necessarily common in all parts of the South, where African Americans had the ability to worship. But here, uh, by all accounts, there was a, a an amazing culture of religion here, and it, it would span. It would go out and become a, a really a national one of people like uh, Edmund Kelly and others. Uh, speak to that a little. It it was amazing. The first African American church was established here in 1838 down in uh, the Hampshire area. Uh, it was uh, on land that was donated by a, a Revolutionary War sa- soldier. There are still eight to ten churches established before the Civil War that are still active here today, African-American churches. Uh, people know about the one that's on East A Street. Well, then there's St. Paul. There are several out in the county that were established before the still Civil War and that are still active. And then we had um, one guy that came here and established um, the a Church of God, the Church of God denomination, if you will. And there are at least four or five churches still existing that he established back in 1900. That's amazing. Uh, I want to spend a, a little bit more time on religion. We need to take our second break now. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, African American life and religion in Murray County, Tennessee. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. 
Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we're continuing our conversation about the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison, an award-winning book that's part of NEA's Big Read for 2021-2022. Joanne, before the break, we were talking about uh, that transition of life from the formerly enslaved to freedom and what it meant in this area in Middle Tennessee where we live. We've talked about how they've created schools and put a premium on education. We've talked about how they built businesses, sometimes alongside white businesses, uh, at least for a time until the laws of the land changed and segregation would come into being. And then that third component, which uh, perhaps is or perhaps is not uh, uh, unique to Murray County, is religion and the power and powerful uh, religious organizations that were started by the formerly enslaved as they transitioned into freedom and how they grow these churches. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. Religion was very important. Uh, Gilmore mentioned in his autobiography that uh, in 1866 they formed the Richland Creek uh, Baptist Association because they wanted unified a unified group of churches. So religion was really very very, very important. Uh, early on, you know, some of the slaves were, they were allowed to um, attend services with their masters, but in some cases they were being taught um, devotion to the master instead of that to God. So um, they were, they didn't want that, so they decided to start, start these churches on their own. And early on, like some of the churches here, they started by having services on the riverbank or under what they call uh, uh, bush arbors, I know um, friendship over in uh, in the Godwin area. They started in 1860, 65 or 66 on a bush arbor, and there were other school uh, churches, especially in the um, in the rural communities. There were a lot of churches who were start- churches that were started in homes because they didn't have buildings, but. Religion was a very, very, very important part of their survival. You know, that was the thing that gave the people some hope um, of being able to get through this um, this challenging, the challenging times of the day. But the key thing is they made it. You know, we're here, many of us are here because they made it. They were able to, with God's help, they were able to get through the challenges challenges of today. And they are successful. When you look at, if when you really study African-American history, you'll see dating back to like the early 1800s, how successful some of the African-American businesses were. Um you know, the African-Americans, you know, started their own church denominations. They were just, they decided that they needed what they needed to do, and they were successful at doing it. They did not wait for people to tell them what to do or how to do it. They decided what they needed to do, what they wanted to do, and they were successful. Even dating back to um, 
Allen, who started the African American Methodist Association. And then there was this guy named Gray, who started the Church of God. And then there was a Williamson, who started the uh, Primitive Baptist Association for African Americans. They decided what they needed to do. And all of this, all of this, except for the Church of God, all of this happened before the Civil War. It's incredible. I'm fascinated by all of these stories, but I think of the Johnsons, who are highly educated, master's degrees at the turn of the 20th century. They were some of the most educated people in this community. It wasn't widely known. They yeah. were still sort of bound by the racism of the day. They lived in small houses here in Columbia. You know, had they been white, they probably would have found greater wealth, perhaps. But they were pillars in the in the African American community here. Uh, uh, and again, some of the most educated people, which is transferring to the next generation as they're teaching them. There's this culture of education, which translates into this culture of business and this culture of religion. And this is all connected. And w- what you're getting to, it's amazing. These stories, although they come out of slavery, they come out of these very dark stories. Despite that terrible legacy of slavery, these stories are ultimately stories of survival and uh, what's what's the word? Uh <laughs> They're prospering. They're prospering here. But what I think is is what they place value on. They didn't place value on um, the 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 wealth they could have had, or they didn't place value on the things they were placing value on education, on building communities, on churches, and they spent their time doing that. I remember a situation when before they. Um, a story, or actually it's, a, it's documented, a story um, when they were building College Hill. Um, the county did not have money to build the College Hill school. So what they did was they closed College Hill, 1880, 81, 82. They closed College Hill for nine months, and they used the teacher's salary to build that school. Uh, in addition to sending someone uh, to collect pers- uh, money. Uh, up north, but this was the dedication or the sacrifices that these teachers made by not having a job for nine months, and their salaries were taken to build the College Hill School. This is this is dedication. This is wanting to com- contribute to the community building. I mean, it takes a it takes a different kind of person that would sacrifice that to build a community. And this is what these people did. And I have a list of, you know, a whole list of people who made those types of sacrifices just to build the community. And it didn't stop right after, it didn't begin and end right after the Civil War. This is something that was ongoing. If you study these stories, you'll see that this was like an ongoing um, uh, activity for a lot of people who wanted to build communities. Joanne, are there places still in existence today where our listeners could go and see the fruits of their labor? Where where can people go and see the places where the enslaved live? Where can they go and see the places where the people who made the transition to freedom lived? Where where can they go and see this? <laughs> well, the only you know, there are these churches that are still surviving and um there are there's there are several in Columbia, they're in um Godwin, they're in um Curlioka, Mount Pleasant, 
And then, of course, you know about the historical markers that the African-American society has been placing all over the city that speaks to the contributions of African-Americans. Um, we've got um, one at College Hill, one at, um, there are two at the um, Mount, um, Mount Lebanon Church. And in fact, we're trying to get a Civil War trails marker to go up on East State Street also to talk, to, to talk about the contributions of the Civil War soldiers that came back from the, um, came back from the war. But except for the historical markers in the churches, it's just not a lot yet. Yet. And uh, it's ultimately the goal, I think. And the stories are so incredible and important, not just on a local level. These stories speak to uh, – they have national significance, I think. So I, I think eventually it's entirely possible that your historic markers are going to sort of be folded into the National Civil Rights Trail and some of those national organizations where people – uh, beyond just the local area can come and, and hear some of these incredible stories as well. Barry, let's come back to Beloved for just a second. Can you describe for us what happened to Setha in the book and try to compare it to her historical counterpart, Margaret Garner? Well, getting back uh, to Beloved, what we saw here in this African-American community in Cincinnati is a lot like what Joanne was talking about. It was it was people who were focused on uh, on freedom and on family and on education and religion and and they were actually having a big feast and they were welcoming Setha and her family who had just escaped and Setha in the midst of this feast she sees the four horsemen coming she sees her master her former cruel master school teacher and his nephew and the sheriff and a federal marshal and they're coming for them and she grabs her children and runs into a shed, and she's determined that she's going to kill the children and herself so that they won't be taken back into slavery under the school teacher. And she succeeded, just like Margaret Garner, in in killing her not quite two year old daughter before she was stopped. Uh, it was it was an awful thing. It was a tragedy. It was what Stamp Paid called the misery. But what happened to Sethi here is different from what happened to Margaret Garner. Everyone was so shocked. Even the school teacher was shocked. And right off the bat, he realized that there was nothing left there to claim. And his nephew was in shock. He was walking off saying, what'd she go and do that for? And the sheriff says to the school teacher, you all better go on. Looks like your business is over. Mine started now. And the sheriff took Setha into custody. She remained in custody for a time, but eventually she was released and, re- and returned back to uh, Baby Sugg's home. And that's when she was, uh, the home became haunted by the, the, the not yet two-year-old baby. Uh, for, for Setha, it all made sense what she did. In fact, she uh, she was telling Paul D. He was saying, you tried to save your children, but it didn't work. And she said, it worked. He said, how? Your boys are gone. You don't know where. One girl dead. The other won't leave the yard. How did it work? They ain't at sweet home. School teacher ain't got them. Maybe there's worse, Paul D. says. And Setha says, it ain't my job to know what's worse. It's my job to know what is and to keep them away from what I know is terrible. I did that. Thank you, Barry. We encourage our listeners to read the book, Beloved, 
It's the NEH Big Read book uh, for 2021-2022. This concludes our two-part discussion of the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison. I'd like to thank Columbia State Community College for allowing History's Hook to partner with them on this important project. I would also like to thank my History's Hook co-host Joanne McClellan and Dr. Barry Gidcombe for their hard work and expertise. We end the show with this quote from Toni Morrison. We die, that may be the meaning of life, but we do language, that may be the measure of our lives. As always, thank you to our listeners. You can now hear all of our History Hook episodes online at WKOMRadio.com, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM FM, Columbia, Tennessee. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard, or online at paintcolumbia.com. This is Trey Adcock with Dixie Equipment Sales and Rental. We sell ASV and Wacker Noisen equipment. We also rent a wide variety of compact equipment in the Middle Tennessee area. Come see us. We are located in Columbia, Tennessee at 200 East 16th Street. You can call us at 615-969-0118 or visit our website at www.dixiediesel.com. We have been in business for over 42 years, and we would love to help you turn your project into reality. Hey, Columbia, this is Sabian Beard with the Columbia Noon Rotary Club with some information and an invitation for you. If you don't already know about Rotary, it's an organization over 100 years old that focuses on service in the community, service through vocation, and service to the next generation. Many of our community figureheads participate in the local Rotary Clubs, and we need your help. Our main fundraiser for our service projects is the legendary Pancake Day, held on Saturday, November 11th from 6 to 4. Tickets are $10 for one or $25 for three, and may be purchased at the door or from any Noon Rotary member. Help us continue to serve your community and enjoy a splendid breakfast with your neighbors. See you there. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen, meat, and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife, Bradley, and I live in Columbia, Tennessee, in Riverside. 
I'm a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, memsmodernlandscape.com. That's memsmodernlandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. This is Trip Stoltz, owner and manager at Columbia Ace Hardware. We have changed our store hours to better serve our community. Columbia Ace Hardware is now open from 7 to 7, Monday through Friday, from 8 to 4 on Saturday, and closed on Sunday. Come see us at 112 East James Campbell Boulevard and let us show you customer service that can only be found at Columbia Ace Hardware. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. This is Coach Trader's Golf from Columbia Central High School Football. You are listening to 101.7 WKOM in Columbia, Tennessee. 